Right, so you've perhaps seen the little fish symbol used by Christians. Maybe it's on a bumper sticker, on a tag, and wondered, what in the world, where did that come from? Well, it dates back to the early church. Nobody's exactly sure the origins, how it came to be, why that particular symbol started being used. But at some point in time, at least a few hundred years after Jesus, it became kind of a common symbol. And then at some point, it became associated with an acrostic. So if you have your insert there, you'll see a little picture. There's the copy of the Apostles' Creed, which we're doing our sermon series on. And there's a picture of the fish, and it's got some strange-looking letters. And those letters are Greek letters. And so what they found was the word, the Greek word for fish, which is ichthus, can be made into acrostic, which said, Jesus Christus, Theos, Soter, Jesus Christ, Son of God, Savior. And so it became a way to think about who Jesus was. And so this fish symbol became sort of a shorthand for talking about who Jesus is and what Jesus has done. And so as we think about who Jesus is, we're starting, we've been doing a series on the Apostles' Creed. And the Apostles' Creed is this creed, this series of beliefs that developed in the early church. Back just within 100 years after the time of Jesus to kind of tell the basics of what it is that we believe who we are as Christians and the things that we believe. And so we started this series not only to understand what they mean, but how they affect our lives and the difference that it can make in who we are and the things that we do. And so it began with this phrase, I believe in God, the Father Almighty, maker of heaven and earth, and a picture of who God is as a loving God, also as a powerful God, and the one who made all that is seen and unseen. And so last week we talked about God made it, God loves it, and God sustains it. And this week we enter the second part of the creed, and it's a look at who Jesus is and what he's done. It's kind of the longest, and it focuses on the person and the work of Jesus, the center of our faith. So we're going to be looking at this first phrase, I believe in Jesus Christ, his only son, our Lord. We're going to take that apart, and there's a lot that goes on, and we're not going to even be able to get into all of that, what that means, but thinking about what that means and how it makes a difference in who we are, and the things that we do. And so it begins, I believe in. And so this word, I believe in, is a phrase that talks not just about a mental assent, not just an idea, but a truth about what we believe and what we put our trust in. And it's a belief in Jesus. And Jesus represents the fact that this, this was a real human being, a man who lived 2,000 years ago, the Hebrew, Yeshua. So similar to the Old Testament, we call Joshua. And Jesus, same thing, God saves. And so this man who lived and died, and we're going to get into that over the coming weeks. Then it says his only son. And so if you're familiar with maybe the most famous verse in the Bible, John 3, 16, it says, for God so loved the world that he what? He gave his only son. Or if you grew up with the King James, the only begotten son, and you're like, what in the world's a begotten? Hey, Lots of theological, lots of theologians debate exactly the, the meaning of how that term was used. But th some things we can say what it doesn't mean. It doesn't mean that, that Jesus came into existence at some point. When we talk about Jesus Christ, the Son of God, we're talking about Jesus, the one Son of God who has always been, who has always existed, the eternally existent. So there was never a time when the Son was not the Son of the Father, and there was never a time when the Father was not the Father of the Son. And this is one of the things that sets Orthodox Christianity, by Orthodox, I mean the right beliefs, not Eastern Orthodox, but Orthodox Christianity apart from many of the cults is this understanding of who Jesus is. So in particular, you think of 
groups like the Jehovah's Witnesses or the Mormon Church or the Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints, as they often use, they have a very different view of who Jesus is. They understand Jesus as having come into being at some point, that Jesus was a created being, that he's somehow less than God. But when we confess the words of the Apostles' Creed, I believe in Jesus Christ is only Son, what we're talking about is a Jesus who has always been and always will be, an eternally existent one. And so that's what we mean when we say his only son. But I want to focus a little more on the other two parts of it. Those first two parts, Jesus Christ and then our Lord. So as we read our Bibles, and I know growing up, I always get a little confusing because we start to wonder, well, it's like Christ is last name. How does that all fit together? But Christ comes from the Greek word Christos, which means anointed one. It's the same as the Old Testament word, the Messiah. So when we say Jesus Christ, we're talking about Jesus, the Messiah. The one who was the fulfillment of the people of God's expectations. And so Messiah means that Jesus is the one who fulfills the story of the Bible. So the story of the Bible begins, like we talked last week, where God created everything. God makes all things and he makes it good. And he puts people into the creation. And then he invites people to rule as his representatives. But then the rest of the story of the Bible is people choosing to do things on their own. The truth of the matter is people don't like to be told what to do. And the history of the Bible is the same thing where God is inviting his people to be his people and to listen to him. And they consistently say, I'm going to do it my way. And so God sends, he says he's going to send a rescuer, a Messiah, someone who will show them what it looks like to live the right way, to live as the king who rules in the right way. And so as the story of the Bible continues, there's all these questions. Well, well maybe it was David. Maybe it's Abraham. Maybe it's, and the story goes on and on until ultimately we reach the story of Jesus. And so for example, in 1 Corinthians 15, this passage we read a little bit earlier, there's kind of this picture which says, by this gospel you are saved. And this is for what I received, what I passed on to you is of first importance, that Christ died for our sins according to the scriptures, that he was buried, that he was raised on the third day according to the scriptures. And so you hear this language again of who Jesus is, and it's all about being according to the scriptures. And the temptation is to think, well, what's the chapter and verse that they're talking about? Where's the story? And we learn oftentimes if we grow up in church, there's these things and we, we learn a verse and we say, oh, and see, sometimes even our Bible has it, depending on the kind of Bible you have. Maybe it has a little note off to the side and there where it says, Christ died according to the scriptures, there might be a little number and you can go and you can find the chapter and verse in the Old Testament that talks about that. But what I want to suggest to you is when it talks about Jesus doing these things according to the scriptures, it's not just about a particular chapter and a particular verse. It's about the story of what goes on in the Bible. And so in the book of Luke, at the end after Jesus' resurrection, so Jesus comes, he's born, he's crucified, on the third day he's raised again, and then there's this story in Luke chapter 24 of Jesus walking with some of his disciples down the road. And he shares with them, and he tells them about things, and what it says is, the people, the, 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 the disciples are confused, but I want to catch this line. Uh, this is Luke 24, beginning of verse 26. Jesus is talking. He says, did not the Messiah, 
hear that word, did not the Messiah, the Christ, have to suffer these things and enter his glories? And he says, and beginning with Moses and all the prophets, he explained to them what was said in all the scriptures concerning himself. And so in other words, this idea of Jesus as Messiah says, Jesus is the fulfillment of the story of the Bible. It's not as if, sometimes we have this unfortunate thing with our Bible. We have, if you're familiar, we have an Old Testament and a New Testament. In the Old Testament's everything before Jesus and then Jesus shows up. And sometimes we don't realize or we're tempted to think, well, I got the Jesus part and then everything else. And it's not the Jesus part and everything else. The everything else, you see, this is the Old Testament, New Testament. There's a whole lot here, isn't there? This isn't meant to be just tossed out and thrown away. This is all the part that's telling this story of God who's promised a rescuer, who's promised a Messiah, a redeemer, who's going to come and to bring his people out of slavery, who's going to come and restore things, who's going to enter into relationship with his people. All this story is building up and time and time again, the people fail and God remains faithful. And then he sends the rescuer. He sends the Messiah. He sends the Christ. And that Christ is Jesus. And so when we simply say that word, I believe in Jesus Christ, it's saying we believe that Jesus is the Messiah. Jesus is the fulfillment of all the story of the Bible. All the expectations of all the things that God is going to do to make things right happens in and through Jesus. And so it's all been building up to this. But part of what we realize is that this Messiah doesn't look like what the Messiah expected to be. So when Paul is describing him here in 1 Corinthians 15, the Christ died, the Messiah died, and that he was raised on the third day, that was not the expectation of the Messiah. That people expected you get a rescuer. What do rescuers do? They come and they wipe everybody out. But Jesus, the Messiah, dies, and so there's this picture of what this Messiah looks like, how God chooses to rescue and so as Paul's describing it here in 1 Corinthians, he's picturing, he's saying, this is the picture of who Jesus is. This is what we talk about it. Paul, in some sense, you notice the way Paul talks about Jesus. If you read the New Testament and his letters, he often just simply says Christ. He doesn't say the Christ. And it's almost as if in Paul's mind, those two things have become so closely linked. The idea that Jesus is the Christ has become so solidified that Christ simply becomes shorthand for Jesus. And so there's this picture of who Jesus is. So I believe in Jesus Christ, his only son. And then there's this phrase, our Lord. And so the word Lord is this other term used in the scripture to talk about who Jesus is. Now the word Lord has multiple different meanings. Oftentimes it can simply mean the, the Greek word kurios can simply mean a master. It can refer to a human being, someone who, who rules over. So the Lord, the master, but it can also sometimes be a reference to the Old Testament. See, we're talking about the Old Testament again. We talk a lot about that because it's such an important part. The Old Testament. So if you have your Bible and you're reading along, you'll sometimes see in your Old Testament, there's these places where you see the word L-O-R-D all in small caps. That's a reference to the name that God has revealed himself of Yahweh. And so, but this name Lord. And so when oftentimes when 
we refer to Jesus as Lord, it's referring to that. So this passage that Diane read from Philippians, at the very end, where it says, that at the name of Jesus, every knee should bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth, and every tongue confess or acknowledge that Jesus Christ is Lord. They're not talking about, well, he's just a little bit. They're talking about that he is the one God, that he reigns and he rules over all things. And that's the picture, the story, the summary of what Jesus has done, that Jesus is the resurrected and saving king. That's not the kind of language we often use. We don't think of Jesus. Jesus. And that's why I think the fish symbol, Jesus Christ, Son of God, Savior, misses something out because, in fact, the primary confession of the early church was Jesus is Lord. When people were baptized, they said Jesus is Lord. In Romans chapter 10, verse 9, it says, if you confess with your mouth, what? That Jesus is Lord and believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, then you will be saved. So confessing that he is Lord is a part of it. What does that mean to say he is the Lord? It means he reigns and he rules over all things. He reigns and he rules over all things. And over all things, and Tony Evans talks about this in a, a sermon where he talks about the book of Colossians and it talks about putting all things under his feet or in the book of Ephesians chapter one, where it's talking again about, or I'm sorry, chapter, yeah. sorry, all my notes are in there, which is overheated. Um, so this is chapter one, verse 20 and following of the book of Ephesians, he exerted when he raised Christ from the dead. Again, it's raised the Messiah from the dead and seated him at the right hand of the heavenly rooms, far above all rule and authority, power and dominion, and every name that is invoked, not only in the present rage, age, but also in the one to come. Okay, I'm going to read that again. So Jesus is set above all rule and authority, power and dominion, and every name that is evoked, not only in the present age, but also in the one to come. So Paul wants to make it abundantly clear that is there anything that's not underneath Jesus? No. So when we say Jesus is Lord, we're talking about he is Lord over everything. And that was what the early church, as they worshiped, as they prayed, as they gathered together, they wanted to acknowledge that Jesus is Lord over everything. There's not one part of our life that he's not Lord over. And so this is where I want to kind of shift gears on it to think about, okay, that's nice to say. I can confess. I can say Jesus is Lord. But when we say that, what do we mean? When we read this story from Philippians that talks about Jesus coming and descending and then being raised and that at the name of Jesus, every knee should bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to glory to God the Father. So what does it mean when we say, I believe in Jesus Christ. So I believe in Jesus, the Messiah, the one who fulfills all that, the Lord that Jesus is the resurrected and saving King. What does it mean for our life day to day? I want us to think about it this way. So what part of your life, I want you to think about all the things that go on in your life. I'll give you a minute because you probably got a lot going on in your life. Whether it's your work, school, your hobbies, all your relationships. Okay, you got all those things, all the different parts of your life going on in your mind. I want you to draw a big circle in your mind. 
And at the center of the circle, it says, Jesus is Lord. Now, which part of your life fits in that circle? Are there any parts that should be outside the circle that we can look and say, well, Jesus isn't really Lord of that part of my life. Now, it may be the case. And what do I mean when we say Jesus isn't Lord of that? Because that, to be honest, that sounds kind of churchy, doesn't it? I sometimes get a little cynical, a little snarky about church language. Because I'm 55, I grew up, I've been around church a long time. Some of you have been around church longer. But there's this language, this kind of patterns of speech we develop. And there's nothing wrong with that. I think we, we as Christians, we as followers of Jesus have unique language that God has given to us. But sometimes we can begin to use language and it becomes empty and hollow. I'm going to give you an example from something totally different to help you get an idea of what that means. So one of the things we have talked about in our family is the power of words and the way we use words and how words can sometimes lose meaning. So what my kids, see, see I'm, I'm not as nice as Rhonda's dad. I yell at my kids sometimes. So. <laughs> but one of the things we do is we talk about the way we use words. And so there are certain ways that our kids have been taught not to use words. And one of them is the word starving. When they get hungry, they know they are not to think of themselves as starving. Because for all things I can say, my kids have never been close to starving. They've been hungry at times, sure. But you see what happens when we, when we take that language, because if we get to the point where it's been an hour and a half since I had something to eat, I'm like, man, I'm starving. <laughs> What then does that teach us when we hear on the news that there are children in the world who are starving? That doesn't mean it's been three and a half hours since their last snack. It can mean something vastly different and it often does. And so those words lose power because when we start to inject them in our everyday life and, and everything is starving, and the other word that we sometimes talk about is love. And we've encouraged our kids to think of love is something reserved for love for other people. You love people. Because love is wanting the best. You love God and you love people. You can like ice cream a lot. You can like going to the lake. You can like vacations. You can like swimming. You can like all those things. But you do not love those things. Because what happens as we start to use the term love for things other than God and other than people is we begin to reduce the power of that word and what it means. Roundabout back to church. That sometimes those words that we use, we use them so frequently, they begin to lose their power and lose their meaning. So we say, Jesus Christ is Lord. Oh, he's the Lord of my life. And we just kind of toss it about casually and don't really think about what that truly means when we say that Jesus Christ is Lord of my life. And that's why I gave us this little inventory to think about our life. Because if Jesus Christ is Lord of our life, it means that we are supposed to be listening to him in all things that we do. That our allegiance, and this is a word that I've, over the last couple of years, grown kind of fond of as an expression of our following Jesus, of 
of saving allegiance or gospel allegiance, of allegiance to Christ. That's what it is. It's to pledge our allegiance to him, which means we follow Jesus in all the things that we do. So to say Jesus is the Lord of my life is to say, when I look at how I order my life, the way I speak, the way I spend my money, all the way I structure my life, the question is, am I looking to the way of Jesus or am I looking to something else? One pastor said it this way. He said, I like, we tend to like the idea of Jesus. It's easy to believe in Jesus, but we're not so sure we believe Jesus knows what he's talking about when it comes to how to run the world. And so one way to think of it is, one of the best places is to help you think about, do you really believe Jesus knows the best way? And are you really li willing to listen to him is to go to what we call the Sermon on the Mount in Matthew chapter five through seven. Blessed are those who mourn. Or in some translations, happy are those who mourn. How many of you jump in and say, oh yeah, Jesus is right on that one. Blessed to be mourning. Blessed are the merciful. Now, we live in a society where mercy is a weakness oftentimes, isn't it? You know, you don't want to show mercy. You got to show that you're out to do it. And we think, oh, well, yeah, in church, this isn't, Jesus isn't just saying, blessed are the merciful when you're sitting with your fellow believers on Sunday morning for an hour. What about when we're running our business, when we're dealing with people at work, when we're going about our business? Do we act in the way of mercy? Blessed are the peacemakers. Ah, Jesus puts the peacemakers up there kind of high. Do we really believe that or... We have this something else we think. Blessed are those who are persecuted. Oh yeah, we're jumping up. Yeah, Jesus is right on that one. He goes on. You've heard that it was said to long, people long ago, you shall not murder and anyone who murders will be subject to judgment. But I tell you that anyone who's angry with their brothers will be subject to judgment. So Jesus says, it's not just killing someone that's so bad, but it's just even our thoughts about somebody or maybe the words that we use. So he goes on, he says, again, anyone who says to his brother, rock is answerable to the court. Anyone says you fool will be in danger of the fire of hell. So maybe we ask ourselves, well, is Jesus Lord of my life? So when I go on Facebook and I start saying things about other people, and I use derogatory terms and I speak unkindly because it's, it's kind of funny and everybody's doing it. I say, well, wait a minute. Do I believe Jesus is Lord? Do I believe Jesus knows the best way to live? And he's inviting me to show my allegiance to him by doing that. Or do I say, well, that's just for somebody else. Or do I say, well, that doesn't really matter because this is something else. Well, something, this is not easy stuff. I'm not suggesting this is, and this is why sometimes people looked at Jesus' Sermon on the Mount and said, oh, it's just spiritual. Jesus is, that's the ideal picture. We're not really invited to follow that. Jesus doesn't end this by saying, this, this is all good stuff, but don't worry about it. At the end, he says, do this and you will live. If you don't, the foundation crumbles. He goes on. You've heard it said, you shall not commit adultery, but anyone looks at a woman lustfully in her heart in his heart, has already committed adultery with his heart. Then why is it that Christians have 
nearly the same, if not sometimes higher rates of pornography use than the rest of the world. And we just kind of, it's become such a commonplace. And Debbie was up here and she talked about the internet and the internet has vastly expanded the use of pornography, but it sometimes just simply becomes a joking thing. Like, oh, that's this thing. And it's no big deal. It's what guys do. We talk about locker room talking, talk about all these. And Jesus says, no, if you want me to be Lord of your life, if you really want to say Jesus is Lord, that means Jesus knows what he's talking about. And we're supposed to show our allegiance to him by following that in the way that we think. You've heard it said, an eye for an eye, a tooth for a tooth, but I tell you, do not resist an evil person. If anyone slaps you on the right cheek, turn the other cheek to him. When was the last time you saw a movie? There are a few, but most movies out there, when the good guy or the good guy's family gets hurt, what's the solution offered in the movie? Go get them, right? Go get your gun, go get your shield, go get your giant hammer, whatever it is you go get and go and crush the bad guy. And Jesus says, I've got a totally different way of living and we don't believe it actually works. We say, but that couldn't work in the real world. Jesus doesn't say, do this if it works and if it doesn't work, try something else. Jesus said, this is the way I want you to live. Dallas Willard said something like this. He said, the problem isn't that Christianity has been tried and found wanting. What he says, it's just never been tried. We read these words of Jesus and say, well, I, Jesus really didn't mean that, did he? If we want to say Jesus is Lord, then we better believe that he meant it. And he demonstrated it. If you read these things that Jesus taught, that's the way he lived his life. When he came to the end of his life here on earth and he's getting ready to be crucified, he doesn't look and say, no, this isn't the way to do things. I'm going to call down the fire of heaven and I'm going to crush you all. What's he do? He gives up his life. He demonstrates it. So we ask ourselves, when we say Jesus is Lord, is he Lord of our politics? Is he Lord of our education? Is he Lord of our money? Do we look at the way we spend our money and the way we use our time? the way we use our talents, the way our relationships work? Do we believe that Jesus knows the best way to do it? And are we, are we willing to show allegiance to him and to follow it? The truth is often we're not. And I say we, because that includes me. Because this isn't easy. It's so much easier, just as the story the Bible tells from the very beginning, it's a lot easier to do it my way. It's like, oh, I'd love to follow you, Jesus, but that's really hard. That's what Jesus says at the end of it. Where he talks about it. And he says, For wide is the gate and broad is the road that leads to destruction, and many are through it. But small is the gate and narrow the road that leads to life, and only a few find it. Because we want to live things our way. But if we're going to say those words, I believe in Jesus Christ, his only son, our Lord, he's inviting us to listen to him, to follow him, to believe him. But I want us to leave here not just feeling bad. Maybe you're not feeling bad. Maybe you're feeling good about yourself. I don't know. Maybe you're feeling overwhelmed with it. But this confession is also 
an expression and a proclamation because when we proclaim the gospel, the gospel primarily, this gospel, good news, is primarily an announcement. And so in the ancient world, the gospel would come and someone would come and they'd say, we have good news. And good news isn't primarily something you follow. Good news isn't primarily something you believe in. Good news is primarily a proclamation, an announcement. And the announcement that when we say Jesus is the Messiah and the Lord is a story that we read in Philippians and the story that we read in Corinthians that Jesus Christ was sent by God. He came, he offered his life as a sacrifice for us, that he died, that he was buried, and on the third day he was raised again, and that God raised him from the dead and then seated him at the right hand, and now he reigns over all creation and all things. And so when we gather together as his people on Sunday morning, that's what we proclaim. The good news that Jesus has conquered sin, death, and the devil, and he's reigning as Lord over all. He's the one who offers forgiveness. He's the one who... So we need to be careful. Jesus calls us to obey. He calls us to listen. He calls us to acknowledge him as Lord. But it's an expression of our allegiance to him. It's an expression of our faith. It's not the way we get saved. It's not the way we're doing. And so we have to be careful. We don't turn ourselves into just trying to do good stuff. But because first of all, first and foremost of all, Jesus invites us to put our faith, to put our allegiance into him, and to proclaim that Jesus is Lord over all. Jesus reigns and rules over all things, which also means that the world is a perfectly safe place to be. Now, we may not believe that because we hear Debbie talk about it. We hear all kinds of things like the world doesn't feel like a safe place to be. And by that, we mean... It's a safe place to be because we know how the story ends. And the story ends with that at the name of Jesus, every knee should bow in heaven and earth and under the earth and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to glory of God the Father. The story ends with all things made right, with Jesus as Lord over all. And so we should hear that good news today that Jesus is Lord. We confess it, we believe it, and we live it. Amen.